Good morning and welcome to Survival Guide. You're with Joel and... And Lorna, and we're here with another week of Survival Guide greatness. Um, <laughs> recapping from the last couple of weeks, our yeah. episodes, so, where we've been, where we've been. So the point of the show here is we're trying to talk to you about, you know, gentrification and displacement um, through the lens of colonisation and looking at the ways in which the past has informed these these things the, uh, the past as indigenous people in this city our experiences of colonization have informed and um have been kind of connected to these now current themes of um gentrification and displacement um over the past couple of weeks we've been talking to you about the you know the economy mm-hmm. um, we've been talking to you about uh organizations we've been talking about where we've come from um, we've been talking about tenants and how they feel. So we've had Ep One with "Leave Your White Fragility at the Shore." Another um, another term that was coined in that ep was "Your flat white has a black history." It's true, um, and that was such a great um, phrase. I'm just going to keep thrashing it. Um, so <laughs> then we had episode two, Wallung, Black Economics and Neoliberalism, um, Black. Aboriginal value systems mm. um, that exist in this country. Looking at the ways in which the kind of economic model that we exist in is designed to uh, extor- um, extract value from the land and how there might be better ways to redesign and redistribute wealth through the, by exploring and looking at the lens, looking at the way in which Indigenous people value um, land as well as each other and, mm. and how to live in a more equitable and communal mm. co- way. Um, and then we had the, our third episode, Dear Tenant, where we recapped where we'd come from, how we'd met on mm-hmm. in Redfern Waterloo, working with the community in relationship to the announced Redfern redevelopment. We went over Brad Hazard's letter to all of the tenants in the Waterloo public housing estate and talked at length about those experiences and the ways in which those mechanisms of the government kind of haven't really changed a lot since Mm-mm. arrival. Mm-mm. And a lot of these institutions, their policies have not changed. Mm. Um, and I guess this is the work that we're knee-deep in now mm. with episode four. Yeah. Episode four. Episode four, here we are. We're talking about education. We're talking about how important it is, the fights that were fought, the, the gains that were fought for by the Indigenous community in Redfern and how they have also been eroded and and, and we're gonna mm. we're gonna talk you through that chronology. Mm. This is also something that's very close to the two of us, clearly, seeing as we grew up in Redfern. But also, um, we want to kind of talk deeper about the kind of the importance of an educational model that isn't directly linked to a white way of being doing. Mm. When I think we have an amazing quote to start off with that I'm gonna. That's right. So we've just been talking this morning and getting our getting our um, plan right and I guess this all comes from you know having such a strategic kind of way of thinking especially within a very aggressive society um, aggressive uh, against non-white often non-male people Um, anyway the quote that I'm going to share with you guys today comes from the great Malcolm X who a lot of our teachers 
would have been learning from um, having access to that international information, being, you know, first generations to have access to that stuff as well. So this quote speaks to me in my practice. And Malcolm X says that only a fool would let his enemy teach his children. And I think that a lot of our older people, especially my parents and people that are involved in this black power movement that has all these ripple effects and all these great institutions that have been built for our communities, by our communities, come from that ethos and that thinking and that just cutting it right down the middle um, mm-hmm. is that, you know, these institutions were never built to benefit us. So we had to build our own institutions. So I'm going to refer to Redfern as a whole cultural institution of learning because that's really what it was Mm. for our generation coming up through there. And we've come through different avenues, of course, which we're going to talk about a little bit more. As Um, we've said on the show and as we've said before, sorry to cut you off, is that, you know, Redfern itself was the crucible. It was the it was the melding pot for the socio-political consciousness of Indigenous people Australia-wide. Uh, it was where the, the battles were fought for first and the institutions that were then established and syndicated around the entire country were established. Mm-hmm. Um, we have not only the health and educational and legal institutions, but also cultural institutions. Mm-hmm. We, and Arts institutions mm. as well, but as well as these educational institutions that are heavily deeply rooted within Aboriginal methodologies and epistemologies of learning and even kinship structures. You know, it was people like Uncle Chica Dixon that went out into the schools talking about if everybody treated each other, if everybody treated every child like their child, every woman like their sister, every man like their brother, then we wouldn't have starving children in this world. We wouldn't have a lot of wars that existed. And that is really coming from that Aboriginal way of knowing, that Blackfellow way of knowing and relating to one another that I think was such a great, a strong foundation mm. that was built up here in Redfern, being a place where... You know, people are coming from all these different backgrounds and and, and uh, geographical locations mm. to be placed here on the front line of invasion and to build a strong foundation for their children to break cycles and to be proud of who they were. And that's why we keep talking about how great Marawina was. Yeah. How great the idea and what it did and the type of thinking that was birthed there the relationships that were established from an early age how important it is i mean it's it's bec- it's become almost a trope to say this in every context but it's still it's because it's the truth it, how do you change the future is is through education and and how do you how do you how do you locate this stuff early for children and um you know, this is the point of the show is we're trying to we're trying to share with you, our listeners, speak to the truths that you might understand mm-hmm. as being indigenous and living in, in a city, not even in Sydney, but also non indigenous people who wanna learn more and understand these ideas, is that this was the pivotal point and I know for me through which I was able to gain access to something that was connected to my family, connected to my culture. And that has gone into forming my my own shape of consciousness, the, the frame of mind that I engage with the world with now. And it, we've we've said this before. This is the um, this is the mechanism through which we're trying to speak to you about tactics and 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 the the ways in which 
um, displacement, gentrification, and colonization as a whole affects Indigenous people. Mm-hmm. We are the mechanism in the survival guide. Our experiences are the experiences through which the Australian continent has the authentic experience. It, mm-hmm. it is how um, settlement was established was through the use of black knowledge and black bodies, and we are now trying to relay this information back onto you with our own black consciousness of this space and of this time. And this this space, Marawina, Redfern as a whole, was paramount in forming that foundational um, yeah, forming that foundation for what is our outlook, what is our worldview. Mm. I just wanted to bring it back to history again, you know, with talk I just wanted to mention the Blacktown Native Institute as well and one of the reasons why um, that was gotten rid of. So for people that don't know, and I'm just sort of jumping all around here, but Blacktown Institute was created by um, white men, by the governors, to experiment on Aboriginal children, to try and assimilate them into white culture. Mm. And it wasn't until a young girl by the name of Maria Locke came through and just broke all of their records. And, you know, she had she had the highest um, test scores for um, literacy and numeracy. And, you know, this is coming from people that have only been speaking English and counting in in these numbers for about, what, 80 to 50 years. Mm. Also, great that you you mentioned the... The Native Institute just recently mm-hmm. I was at I was in Blacktown at the site of the Native Institute mm-hmm. last Friday last Saturday with um, uh, the event that they threw that the MCA in partnership with the um, indigenous organizations around um, the Dara community and the healing around the Native Institute um, had a event and a ceremony um, unveiling a set of artworks that had been completed in um, collaboration with artists, but also Linda Kennedy, as uh, who we had on um, mm. the show in earlier in earlier iterations when we were talking about value systems. She she spoke at an event for us. Linda Kennedy, you and woman, amazing architect and and, and spatial designer. And she um, featured on episode two for mm. our um, podcast listeners. If you want to backtrack there, yeah. Um, and you know, and I guess this is just another circle within a circle completed. Mm. Mm. And this is very much how we as young Aboriginal people work and we know that these things you know it's it's the right time it's the right time to have these conversations it's so timely for that to be happening because when we talk about all of the things that have been built in redfern for young people to have a strong foundation being eroded it's hard not to talk about what was happening with the native institution mm. and native institute and all of the things that have been happening since then mm. and prior mm. Because that is when that is really the the work that we are having to undo, and that our older people, our elders, were really strong about and knowledgeable about these things. It's because we know that government has been experimenting on Aboriginal children and the way that they perceive themselves, and the way that they learn, and the way that they take in knowledge since they have been coming here, since they've come here, since invasion, since 1788. They've been stealing children. And that's been, and I mean, that's, that's, that's almost a beautiful kind of narrative link when we talk about the ways in which Redfern as a community has mm-hmm. been used as a testing ground for um, policy decision, but also policy decision. Yeah, I, I guess <laughs> I mean, so, yeah. As a, as a sort of an institutional um, construct, the community and the black children or black people within that community have been used to test out 
mm. other other forms of policy that then go on to affect uh, the the wider Australian community, um, the, the the wider the wider um, yeah. and and also the ways in which those those. Not only not only the things that are done onto people by the government, so the kind of cruelty and the things that are done on from the outside onto us, mm. but also the things that we do f- that we have been able to do for ourselves have been manipulated and co-opted mm. and redistributed. Um, but I guess that's why Redfern again we keep coming back mm. to it is because look at all of these things that have been happening because of these institutions and young people being in these institutions whether it was their choice or not all of the things and all of the trauma that we've been carrying because of those institutions look at what these frameworks in redfern that were started and inspired by people like malcolm x by black black power movement you look at all of these things and these great foundations that we have come from and that we are very privileged to have been exposed to mm. at that time because they have been eroded yeah you know look at look at the time frames and the strong frameworks that have come from this community that have worked mm. compared to how long these institutions have mm. been existing in this country mm. the the answer here is if we have we have to have the access we have to have the we have to be the ones creating this educational models for our young people because we're the only ones that actually understand what they need. Mm. We're the only ones that actually understand what these institutions are doing to us. Fundamentally, it is the, it is the, you know, the crux of the argument of self-determination and the right to it mm. is to be able to dictate the needs of your own community and be able to, con- be able to have access to resources to develop that and to develop that through. And I think... I think it's it's helpful to kind of maybe link Marawina back to the kind of the the the, the wider narrative of, of the progression of Redfern and Waterloo and you know when they, there was a huge community clearly of Indigenous people within Redfern Waterloo um, up until the 70s you know like it was where everyone came from if you grew up and you grew up on a mission and you turned 18 you came to Redfern and you worked because there was work in the city because the factories were there and that's where people were that's where people were working that's where there was a, a huge established community well, also uh, with that on the missions their education would have reached you know high school year mm. 7 at the most and it was usually dictated by the wives of the mission managers which were semi illiterate as well you know because women weren't allowed to learn much back then as well Mm. um so you know a lot of young people were coming to sydney because of these opportunities to gain a further education to be able to uh, finish high school to be able to one day you know go to university Mm. and these are not these are not out there outrageous um goals to have but for us apparently Mm. they are mm. um and i think it's a it's a it's a thing of unpacking that you know um I've, i always talk about being the second generation in my family having um a university education not that that is the ultimate identifier that i agree with because you know academia and being a black person in that space is so foreign and again, that's why, you know, we look to people that have really been taking this, reiterating what we need and actually speaking to young black people, young Aboriginal people, talking about what it is we need and just bringing it back to that quote, you know, only a fool would let his enemy educate his children. 
so powerful we are digging deep we are talking about education hegemication um black fellas always chuck extra h or they will get rid of that h if there is one in a word lol um yeah hegemication thinking about that and thinking about our journeys so you know i guess the first day of school for any parent is always a really hard one um to let go of that attachment i know working in schools it is one thing that i hate is when the kids um, can't get settled because their parents are hanging around right i think that being an aboriginal parent today is on a whole nother level it's just like a whole nother level of stress that i'm pretty sure that not everyone has to go through um you know so what i'm talking about i guess is how different our experiences are within these kind of planes you know being being having your first day of school is usually something that's celebrated unfortunately i don't feel that i don't feel like our kids get celebrated enough i feel like the fears as a parent with um, even thinking about putting my child in school um, is really, really different. Um, you know, I've been having conversations with other black mothers as mm. well about, you know, the fears that we have about raising young black boys in Redfern, where historically, you know, the police have gotten away with murdering young black boys simply for riding bikes and things like that. So you can imagine the kind of fear that I have with these mild, mild, you know, milestones mm. in your child's, your child's life, life yeah. right? Um, so I just wanted to bring it back, bring it back to our stories, bring it back to our journeys. I went to Redfern Public School, which doesn't exist anymore. So I actually can't take my son past. My, well, I can. Um, it's very different. It's now the NCIE. It's now the NCIE, and it's um, everyone's kind of playground, um, and. You know, it's very different, but I can't, my son will never be able to go through that institution the way that I went through mm. that. My son won't be able to go to Marawina like I did. And these are things that I know that young parents really pride themselves in, especially rearing their children, especially rearing their children in the community that they grew up in. Um So I went to Redfern Primary and I just wanted to flip it back to you a little bit just to talk about... um where you went to school. Yeah, definitely. I, 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 I went to Marowina and then I moved on to Darlington, which is a school in the kind of Darlington, the new town end of Darlington um, mm-hmm. and kind of close to King Street on um, Abercrombie Street, just at the, at the end. It's still, it's still there, which is kind of the contrasting point to yours. It um, was always a great school. I mean, I went there until I was in year three or four. Um, before I moved to the Northern Territory. It was always trying to encompass and center an indigenous uh, narrative within the context of the school. It was not, you know, it was not 100% indigenous enrollment. There was um, a huge, a huge diverse group of people who went to that school from all different walks of life. And everyone was brought back to the same point by wearing a uniform that was a red shirt with a indigenous styled um dot painted kangaroo in as the emblem um which i think really spoke to the attitudes of not only the school but the 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 parents who sent their children to that school is that they they valued that 
um, that culture and they valued that narrative and that was a really important thing. And, um, you know, I talked about this with a few people who I went to school with. Um, shout out to Mali who gave us a coffee this morning. I saw her today. Um, it's when, what's, like, when's Darla going? You know, this question that comes up, what, is, it, is this place safe? Is um, after what we see with, you know, Cleveland... Um, Cleveland Street High School and the Redfern Public School, Alexandria Public School and Waterloo Public School as well as Cleveland Street. So that's four schools which were all the local public schools Mm. in the area that were around when I was growing up. And they've all been shut down. They've all been shut down, that's right. And And amalgamated into one, Mm. um, which is now known as Alexandria Park Community School. Um, so we'll 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 talk a little bit about my gripes with this community and you know a lot of the barriers that young people are having to navigate through um, navigating through this space at the moment. Um, but I just wanted to um, just talk about how it felt for you as an Aboriginal child having a uniform that had Aboriginal art on it and then having Aboriginal art on the walls mm. at the school, having Aboriginal programs. Mm. Did, how did that make you feel growing well, up? It was, you know, you didn't question it as a kid as well. I think the transition from coming from Marowena was actually quite funny. Like I, I, I came out of Marowena and mum was like, what school do you want to go to? She wanted to send me to maybe Redfern Public and my cousins were going to Darlington. So I went to Darlington because I wanted to hang out with them. Um, and that was the kind of natural progression. And, and to see, I mean, you know, in the assembly, whatever that was, when you get your awards and you'd sit down and everyone would hear um, yarns about stuff, we'd always, always be singing in language. Mm. Songs from all over Australia. You know, women's songs for gathering, men's songs for hunting, all these different performances and kind of performative things that valued Indigenous knowledge and Indigenous culture was built into the program. And, I, I mean, it's shaped, it's shaped the way that I engage with my own culture my own history my own um sense of self and, and it's it's formative it's it's a it's an amazing it's an amazing thing to be and it's an amazing amazing privilege to be afforded that but also the inclusivity of it which is you know inherent i think to all mob and all indigenous culture is that that welcoming in um it wasn't you know it, i wasn't you know i don't i don't i don't i don't present um directly as being indigenous i don't have brown skin my, my friends who also went there they were white they were mm. they were they were from you know um so, you know southern asian continent um there was lots of there's a huge diverse and multicultural group of kids who were all welcomed into programs and conversations about indigeneity indigenous culture um you know i got to i got to have my totem put on my you know mm. my space when i was when i first arrived at that school mm. you know and that was welcomed. And then, you know, the, the students, then we all got to talk to each other about, you know, what that meant and where I was from and what it meant to have a turtle as a totem and what that conversation was. I mean, that was, that was so, you know, to think that that is a privilege that you were afforded as a child is a really, I mean, it's sad, but it's to think that that's not afforded for people now. Mm. Um, especially other children growing up in Redfern and Waterloo mm. and... Now, now that we see the plans for the amalgamation, but then the 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 development and expansion of mm. the Alexandria Park High School uh, or school, a community school, and and who that and who that um caters to, but also the changing mm-hmm. the changing dynamic in the city, which is what we're trying to talk about in this show, which is gentrification. We all play a part in it. 
it is inherently a process of the value of things changing, not just the value in monetary sense, but the value in a community um, due to a design around exclusivity around who can afford where they can, mm. who can and can't be in space. So I, um, coming from, you know, that Redfern public school background, we often joked that um, these white people that ran the school were preparing us for what they thought we were destined to be, which was in a very fucked up way. Um, we wore um, olive green uniforms. So, you know, of course we made that connection with um, the jail uniforms. So that was often the joke that we wow. had um, at the school. Um, and, you know, that, that that's really, again, contrasting to how you felt with, with wearing your uniform mm. that had, um, you know, uh, and it was, it was no joke. It was literally no joke because we seen that a lot of kids that we went to school with, they were already starting to be noticed by police and things like that. So we're going to get into that in another episode because that's in a whole nother mm. a whole nother mountain on its own that these kids our kids myself even have had to learn how to climb over with nothing with mm. no tools you know um and i guess this is bringing it back to why we're doing the show is how did we survive this um so redfern um even even you know, looking at that, Redfern was actually, Redfern Public School was one of the oldest schools built in the city um, with really old architecture. Um, the demographic that made up those students, were, there was a large, there was a very large number of Aboriginal students which were coming from the local housing estates mm. in Waterloo because Redfern School sat on that side of Redfern, um, which was closer to Waterloo. So... It had a lot of people from other backgrounds there, um, but there was always more Aboriginal kids than anything else. And because of that, the teachers recognised that it was important to have the community involved in education um, and what they were doing. So because of that, you know, they invited elders. They took us to the dance theatre every time we had mob coming in from other countries and we were able and privileged to have that exchange and to learn, um, you know, different mobs' dances and to be to, for the dancers to be deconstructed and then to show them dances as well that we were learning at school um, and that were as a part of those relationships between all these Aboriginal community-controlled organisations as well as this learning institution that was very, I don't know, you know, they really valued... Um, they really valued their white history. Mm. They really valued the fact that, you know, white men had come through that school and went on to become prime ministers and, and fight in the, the, the wars and all that sort of stuff. There was a big honour roll at the front that all of us kids, you know, like we always like to think that we, we knew someone in there, but the reality of it was is that the community was really different back then compared to what it was, right? Mm. So one of the things that was um, used to to erode these institutions that kind of were being tweaked, being tweaked and being influenced by the local community. Mm. Another thing I just wanted to mention is that it wasn't until I was an adult that I realised that a lot of the other non-Aboriginal kids that were there were coming from refugee backgrounds. And again, that makes sense because of the whole Department of Housing. You know, that was, that was where we were coming from. We were living in those houses and we were going to school together. Mm. And it was only because of the community and because of those white people in there that knew what was good for these kids 
that they had such a centralised um, focus on our methodologies and epistemologies. So these non-Aboriginal kids that gone through there, they call all our aunties and our family members auntie and uncle and nan. And that sort of stuff, that's the strength of the community that I come from that doesn't get spoken about. And a lot of people don't... They, they ask these questions about how, why, why is it so important to keep this community? And those are the things... That's the lifeblood of the community that has been stamped out when they got rid of those schools. Because yes, they must they were government institutions, but because of the placement, they had a really alternative way of. Um, I guess but that's what we're trying. That's I mean that's that's what we're that's what we're really focusing on. Not only in this episode, but over the show, is really trying to highlight to you the importance of this community. That when given whatever opportunity it had to have the the mm. the self-determination within the context of education legal services health services all of these things it became something extraordinary it became something not only beneficial to indigenous children but in but it beneficial to everyone everyone who was everyone. involved the inclusivity the connectedness that was established within these spaces there was a there was a, a raw energy that was tapped into in all respects around family life and other things and that we're trying to we're trying to and all of that was built on top of the fact that aboriginal people have maintained space in that area, on the front line of invasion, in light of all of this dispossession, mm. we, we, we've been taught to honour the traditional owners of this land and we've been taught to keep reminding everybody else about what happened here. Um, and it just brings, it brings me to kind of... I'm just kind of um, going from point to point and just really treating this like a conversation. And I just wanted to um, just mention... Um, that Redfern School was closed in 2003 um, and then there was a crossover with Marawina then um, being moved... Marawina moved from the site on Redfern, on um, so Everly Street over to... Do you want to give a brief history, just what we were talking about, just those establishing years? Well, I guess, I mean, like we were saying before, we were talking about, um, I think a lot of the programs that are in that engaged with the kind of fundamental principles of... Um, early uh, early education, um, which came from the Black Panther movement over in the breakfast program the breakfast that we programs. spoke about, and the breakfast program was is what originally started Marawina, which was on Hollis Street, um, which which fed the children in the communities around Redfern and Newtown in 1972, because um, it's kind of like a no brainer. Kids aren't going to be able to get aren't going to be able to achieve well in school unless they've got full mm -hmm. tummies. And that was and something was, that the institutions themselves, the, the schools, weren't catering to. So there but was that was a, a crossover too with the people that were involved in establishing the medical services, yeah. identified these things and these gaps. Yes, yes. And filled them. And so in in so what happened was it kind of, I guess, on like a shoestring budget and whatever could come from it from 1972. Volunteer bases. Volunteer bases indigenous mums set up and a space in... Ev on Everly Street in a terrace, which until um, later into the 80s was then established across the road in a building um, which just recently got demolished. Mm. Um, but yes, like we were saying, in terms of the, the kind of crossover, Marawina as a, as a community preschool moved from Everly Street over to George Street on the site of the Redfern Public School mm -hmm. down the end near, Water near the Waterloo Estate, near... Um, the towers, mm -hmm. and it was only there for about a year and a half before that site was put down for development in two thousand and four. 
mm. um, and was then shut down and turned into the, well, torn down and turned into the NCIA, which is now mm. what stands there today. And it just brings me back to, um, you know, what I was talking about. These public schools. Okay, so in the whole city landscape, these were the schools that service this proximity that we sit in that we sit in which is Redfern Waterloo Alexandria Green Square which was known as Zetland more back then even the whole establishment of Green Square very much fits into all of these gentrification um, that's been happening that we're mm. trying to unpack mm. um, we're just kind of in retrospect going back and identifying where these things have detoured and where this path has been hijacked and it goes back to um, a lot of it really today goes back to um, 2004. And this is what it says on paper, you know, because we've been trying to do a lot of research. I've been trying to find stuff about my schools and mm. haven't been able to find a lot. What I have been finding, though, is the links between the Redfern Waterloo Authority, what's going on now and what has happened and what caused a major headache when I was 15 years of, old, of age. So I'm talking about the last 15 years of eroding educational institutions and displacing young people because this is a tactic. If we have no schools in the area, then families have to move, right? Which means that there won't be a growing population in that area, which usually means that that's how you kind of... That's the death of a community, right? Got, if there's no kids. Well, it's also it's also um, come into, in, into question with the redevelopment of Waterloo where they say that they're not going to um, they're not going to cut down the supply of public housing that is currently being um, used. Mm-hmm. So they're, they're going to try and keep... 3,000 dwellings, but the size of those dwellings will not be the same. And mm-hmm. what we currently have in Redfern Waterloo is three bedroom, two bedroom, sometimes four bedroom spaces in the walk ups and the other buildings, um, which will they can't replicate on their budget. They will only be able to create one or two bedroom apartments. Mm-hmm. And, and what that does is it allows it doesn't it doesn't give any leeway for say a, a community that has. Um, one families young families. Fa- young families larger than two or three people, but also uh, you know a larger family makeups that you know would have people staying in different places over different periods of time, and that I mean that plus what we've currently seen with the issuing of facts giving, um, disallowing anyone with a drug conviction mm. al- allowed to live in public housing in Redfern Waterloo, um, or a Something is, what is it, mm. a, a intent to supply charge within the last 10 years, five years, and you're not allowed to live in Redfern Waterloo. So, I mean, first you don't build houses for families, so that gets rid of the families. And then, you, and then, these, then these young people who have grown up in this neighbourhood who ipso facto maybe five years ago had a, had a run-in with the police because the police are targeting them get a drug charge and then can't live in their community either. So it's... You Which know, it's brings, a- brings me back to another point, which is the stigmatisation of the local or black youth, which has been hmm. the justification to treat us appallingly and to further dehumanise um, the, the young people um, in the area. And that's been happening since I was a young person and it was happening a long time before that. Um, you know, we are finding out today that there's actual special police policies focusing on children that could potentially have a record in the future. And 70% of them are Indigenous kids. But the thing is, is that we're being policed on the prospect that we could possibly 
have charges in the future. These kids haven't actually done anything yet, but they will get treated that way and they will be hounded and harassed. And on my the occasions that I experienced and a lot of people growing up and going to Cleveland Street High School, we were often strip searched by police. We were accosted by police on our way to school. You know, so if those the, these are the kind of things that have been happening, um, and it and it speaks to that whole um, um, you know care to prisons pipeline that they're talking about in America. Um, you know, I've just been recently talking on every panel that I could possibly um, f- bring it back to, and I've been mentioning this is you know everything that we pos- everything that we do for ourselves is still a band-aid solution mm. and until we actually have land and space all of these things are never actually going to be addressed all mm. of these issues and all of these things that we're experiencing as a country um, are never ever going to be addressed and the fact that if you're expelling young aboriginal children you're making you're making them more more likely to end up in jail within the time that they've been expelled because if they, you know, if the police are kind of hanging around and picking off young people that they feel are not supposed to be there or are wandering about, then you become a target for all these other things. Mm. And this is something that we're going to break down in further um, relief in and in higher detail in a, so in a later episode. I'll no, it's really stop. important. It's really <laughs> important. And I mean, just listening to the way that we speak about these things in passion, this is about this is what we're trying to convey right now and what we're trying to convey in this process within Survival Guide, using our experience and our knowledge to show to you how gentrification is one and the same to the techniques and the tactics used by settlers in colonization. Mm. We all play a role in this in this in this whole in this system and we need to be aware of this and hopefully when you come on us with this journey come along with us on this journey we can show it to you Mm. show you the truth show you the things that you know you are connected to and like Lorna said before you know your flat white has a black history Mm, and I guess it's it's a way of stopping that rose tinted view that everybody is kind of having at the moment and that we're encouraged to have and just take off those glasses and start looking at the reality of all of this which brings me back to Alexandria Park Community School and how much money has been pumped into this community in the last 15 years and what has it actually touched on the ground because those kids down there are still in demountables those kids down there still don't have a space those kids down there on top of the space the little bit of space that they had in this city are further being encroached upon Mm, mm. so with the plans at the moment as they sit the rest of the city is starting to acknowledge that they got rid of all of their public education institutions in the whole inner city area so now in 2018 they're talking about investing 60 million dollars into into the cleveland street high school site which was the original site that cleveland street high school came from which was Mm. then moved to alexandria and And i'm i am jumping has been operating as the language school um an english language school so now they're down there on top of those kids as well so everyone's been pushed into the smallest bit of space that when I was growing up was considered a black school. Mm. 
Mm. And which was often their justification for getting rid of it as well because they were talking about not having enough enrolments. Well, the fact is they had enough enrolments, but the enrolments that they were getting weren't the ones that they wanted, which were, i.e., black kids, mm. um, you know. Uh, and I've, I've jumped totally off, off topic uh, talking about... No, no, no. We, we, this, is, this is important and this is, a really, this is a really interesting kind of conversation to kind of engage with right now because we're talking about the redevelopment of Redfern Waterloo we're talking about and and, and alongside the redevelopment of Green Square or you know as it was once called Zetland this uh, we're going to see over the next 20 years an influx of close to 60,000 people if not Mm -hmm. more and we don't have we have one school that's being refurbished the Alexandria Park Community School and then one more school now that's just been named, which will be on Cleveland Street. Which is on the original side of where that high school that has mm. been, you know, amalgamated within the primary schools, um, with all the primary schools. So it's it's a huge... I know it sounds confusing. It's because it is. Mm. It is really confusing. Um, and I guess, you know, this is why we're trying to go back and kind of look at these things so long story short i was about 15 going into year 10 when that was happening and there was a huge push to repackage the school mm. and how it looked and things like that um so well now we've got well now they've repackaged the whole attitude towards schooling in new south wales and especially in cities where you know like we were saying there's now been a 60 million dollar budget for the development of a 13-storey high-rise high school in the city. And, mm-hmm. and, I mean, that's where we're going to now. It's, it is on a park, that's true, um, the site, but we're, this is a public educational facility. This is mm-hmm. not a private school that can be mm-hmm. maintained and dealt with through um, the admissions of students throughout the year. It is a public school mm-hmm. that will house 1,200 pe- people in this 13-storey school run by the New South Wales government. And... I don't know how that sounds to you, but I'm, I'm, I'm quite interested in how this new form of schooling and this new practice around density, you know, vertical mm. schooling is, the answer, is the answer to these things because it feels like it's backtracking, really. It feels like it's going, oh, we didn't provide a school for the influx of the 60,000 people that are coming and we've robbed the existing community of four or five schools in the process of trying to develop that into other land, into other things to make money because that's what seems mm. to be the central key in this conversation around development um, is the government making, you know, money. Money, yeah. And I guess it, it comes back to, you know, what originally all of these things that have been in place that now make all of these rules started, which was very much the same way. So it was a response, um, you know, if you look up a little bit, and again, we're going to go into this, but long story short, Redfern Waterloo Authority says that it was established in order to counteract antisocial behaviour, so in this whole thing, I do not understand how building structures is actually addressing any antisocial behaviour in the community or is creating any type of social cohesion because the things that they're actually doing are creating more... Division. More division. Mm. And that is what we know colonisation to do. It's the whole divide and conquer thing, breaking up communities, dispersing communities, moving people around, valuing people over other people and then you know, running with this one group and, you know, not really paying attention or listening to the law of the land. Mm. And that is always what's got to come back to. It's interesting also just to, to before, you, before you close off, talking about that sort of 
mass stigmatization of a group or a community in terms of the way that, you know, the Waterloo Towers are treated. You mm-hmm. know, this is a community that through almost a smear campaign or propaganda really around around what these buildings or, or, or worse, what these tenants, these housos. Remember that show? It's a TV show called Housos. It was televised stigmatization of people from a lower socioeconomic group mm-hmm. through which attitudes were formed about the people who live in these sorts mm. of buildings when really those towers themselves were were for majoritively majoritive uh, majority of um, elderly tenants mm. which are not the people that you think are the ones running around shooting up or shooting each other or stabbing each other which is what is televised and what's told to us about these communities mm. it's just a further fracturing a further undermining of the reality of what people have to experience it's it's surface level change um the fact that the war the red firm waterloo authority could change antisocial behavior through the built form mm. is highly problematic and aspirational when you don't even deal well, with the structural inequality that's below and that. you know what it breaks my heart as someone that actually knew tj hickey um you know and um losing a cousin just recently um which again 15 years almost to the day later um, you know, these things have become synonymous with all of these other things. And it breaks my heart that that, that boy's face is now again being used synonymously with all of this propaganda, with all of this stigmatisation of local young people. Now it's getting ridiculous to the point where their newspapers are not even talking about Redfern and Waterloo, but they'll have pictures of those flats there. Um, you know, so it, it, it's become this thing. And as a young person that was involved in experimental art forms, I, one of my first public statements, media statements, actually is talking about, you know, when we do deadly things, we have to actually ask media to come and document it. And we've got to be careful about what we say because they could easily turn that story into, again, stigmatising us. So we have to police ourselves every time. We had to be trained on how to talk to media from a very young age. But then when it comes down to it, it was always anything else, anything negative that can be used to scandalise and further stigmatise a community was always what's going to be picked up. It was the click fodder before the internet was such a big thing. Mm. You know, and, and how, do, how, do we, how do you think that makes those young Aboriginal people feel? How do you think that makes the people, the young people coming, living in those places, how do you, make, how do you think that makes them feel about themselves? And I guess it brings, you know, back to being Aboriginal people in these institutions, how valued have we been feeling? How valued are the next generation, the next generations for the next 20 years, how their education is going to be disrupted? And it's all about space again. We keep asking for space. Mm. And it's like what value do you put on their futures? And that's, that's, what, right. that's what it is. It's your value. Are you, are you actually thinking... Yeah, it, when you reduce someone's um, experience of their future into a, a value, an equation in which you can make a decision about how much you're going to spend on public funding for, you know, schools and mm-hmm. other things, it becomes, you know, fraught and um, quite upsetting. And I think we're going to talk to a few people after we're, the break are, um, about um, their own experiences within the institutional um, 
someone from high school, but also someone from the institution, from the um, the University of Sydney. We're going to talk to them about their own experiences. Oh, we've got such a big episode, and we've just spent so long just literally setting it up yeah. because it is confusing. It's loaded. It's full mm. on, mm. and we've been in the thick of it trying to make sense of it mm. again. Looking at these tools and looking at the tools that we need to reiterate to the next generation on how to survive and I just wanted to mention at that time at school at the age of 15 I was actually told that I should leave school and I should go and have a baby and get on the pension and these were things coming from educational practitioners in those institutions but this is how valued I was at that time when all of this rebranding was happening Mm. and again we're going to talk to someone um, who's who's going to talk about their experiences, and we'll leave it. We'll leave it there. We're going to cut to some music. We'll leave um, it there. You've been listening to Joel and Lorna on the Survival Guide Radio Skid Row eighty eight point nine. Keep it locked. We're going to have a whole next hour of amazing content mm, for you to coming listen up to. Interviews. Um, thanks a lot. Keep it locked. Welcome back. We're on... We're live. We're live. On 88.9 Skid Row with the Survival Guide, bringing you all the things you need to know to survive. So, Lorna, who's on the phone? We have an ex-student on the phone. Um, uh, We've got a couple of questions for this person. This person is a great representation of this community um, and of exactly what we're talking about and is very relevant and recent. So, we're going to cross to our live... um, phone call that we've got at the moment. Hello, can you hear us? Are you there? Yeah, hello. Um, do you want to just start with uh, how old you are and where you have lived? Um, I'm 18 and I grew up in Waterloo, but I, I like moved out a couple of years ago. But mm. I still like, um, I, I, yeah, still go to the community, visit the community all the time. How hard has it been since you've moved out of the community to maintain that relationship? Uh, it has been pretty hard because, like, I live, like, it's not too far, but it is, it is far, tracks <laughs> like, if that makes sense. Like, just half an hour, and like, half an hour to an hour. So that adds, yeah. adds stress, right, that you didn't experience before and with a lot of different things, money, time, all that sort yeah, of stuff, right? Yeah, yeah. So, like, yeah, when I lived in Waterloo, it was, like, school was, like, 10 minutes away, 10 minute walk. But now it's like we have to leave like an hour before school and all that. And you, you had younger siblings as well. Yeah, so it was a um, very big change. Which but we adapted good, sort of, still getting there. Mm, well done. Um, and congratulations on finishing school last year because I know uh, as someone coming from this community and going to the same schools that you did 15 years before, I know a lot of the barriers, and we've actually been talking about a lot of the barriers that Aboriginal students specifically in this community are going through just to get to that Year 12 stage. I just wanted to ask, how supported how supported did you feel in your educational journey? Well, I guess I had, I had good teachers. You know, they weren't all the best, but there were some that, yeah, they were, they were great. Even, like, the family support and all that stuff. So it was, they did put that in my mind that I had to push myself. And I did sort of want to do good for the community. But then sometimes that school was a bit difficult because we didn't, like, there were some programs 
um, where like there were just some things that we weren't learning that we sort of needed to. So like how um, last year, because um, I went to Alexandria last year, Lorna, Lorna Monroe, <laughs> the one on the radio now, she came and did a language program. And it was sort of like, like I did Viradri in primary school and that, but that died out as well, um, like as I got older. And then like last year, year 12, yeah, she brought that back. And it was good to have that because it was also, yeah, good to see the other kids enjoying learning our language. And then like it was also through poetry. So it was something different from what we usually do. And um, it was through the program NASCAR, which is a sporting, like sport, um, the National Aboriginal Sporting Chance Academy, if I'm right. Yeah, yep, that's it. Yeah, so we did a lot of sports stuff, cultural stuff, but yeah, it was good to do yeah different aspect of it, like language mm. in that sense. Um, so uh, you weren't having any of those kind of conversations in the school, in, like within that space before that program came? Um, no, not really, actually. Like, um, we did talk about the, with our art studies teacher, um, like a few times about like the language and that stuff. And, um, just like in different schools, how they are learning language and it's just, yeah, we didn't really have that sort of, um, access that makes sense. But then, yeah, it was good for Lorna to come down and, um, do that program because like I said, like it, it died out when I was at this, cause I've, I've been at that school since, yeah, since kindergarten. So when I was younger, I had Viradjuri, we learnt Viradjuri, and then, yeah, it's like... It I hasn't got older. been consistent. Mm, yeah, that's really interesting. Yeah. Mm. So, like, my brother's not really learning Viradjuri, whereas when I was his age, I was doing that. Yeah, you and know you, what I mean? so, yeah. you would have learnt songs in at least three other languages as well. Yeah, yeah. Um, and, like, um, but, yeah, even, like, um, it is sort of coming around, but then, like, there are still some mistakes here and there. Mm. But it's, yeah, I would like, yeah, because my siblings go there, I would love for them to have the sort of opportunities that I had when I was younger, but even better if that was possible. So, like, even for them to have, um, like, language, Aboriginal language as a, um, a subject itself, a compulsory mm. subject. So, in other schools, would be better. Other schools, it is compulsory. Yeah. But at, at this school that has the largest um, rates of Aboriginal enrolments, it isn't which is why I created that program to come back into those schools because I could see that there were gaps. Um, I just wanted to ask, was there any other kind of learning outside of that program and outside of AB Studies where you were made to feel that Aboriginal knowledges were valuable? Um, I guess with um, like Harmony Day and NAIDOC Week and all that stuff. But um, to be honest, like I'll tell a story one year, it, it spun a couple of us black kids out because at NAIDOC, they just had, they didn't have one black fella up there performing or anything. It was, yeah, wow. it was weird. I'm pretty sure there was like, um, there was there was one one group, maybe. It was, yeah, Aboriginal girls, the Sapphire. I'm pretty sure they performed, but not sure. But I remember there was only one. That's mm-hmm. so like Maybe acknowledgement of the country. But yeah, it was like we were spinning out because each performance, like there was don't mean anything, but yeah, there's Asian people, different people, different culture. It's yeah. such a missed opportunity to put that culture um, that comes from this community, um, you know, out there to be celebrated. And, you know, that that's really disheartening to hear yeah. um, that you followers have had to experience that, especially in a space where, um, you know, things like NAIDOC was such a huge event. Exactly, yeah, that's what we mean. Like, we, you know, how many, how many days, yeah, we understand because it is multicultural and everything, but especially NAIDOC week, it was like, 
what you know what I mean? No one even approached us, and that's when we sort of realized, you know, we we got to plan it ourselves. So then that's when um maybe like yeah, my last year we um did dance Aboriginal dancing Palmy Day. Um, a couple of us girls, yeah, and um yeah, it was it was pretty cool, and I would I would have loved it if they um did it again this year. But I guess it's some, someone just needs to plan it all. That's all. And and I guess that's what I'm kind of trying to get to is I've been talking about some of the things that are, are, have been barriers to um, myself, you know, and I finished school 15 years before you and it just, um, I can't help but think that it's, it, nothing much has changed. Yeah. Yeah, it really, yeah, it doesn't seem like anything has changed. Like, um even like like a couple of things did um, seem like it was uh, how could I make like that whole thing that how Raju was just how we just stopped learning about that like everything was just taken away from us if that made sense or not everything like something mm-hmm. then we sort of yeah we didn't have that access to many things like we used to like when I was little we used to always do Aboriginal dancing for like you know performance performancing and all that stuff you know what I mean mm-hmm. but then like when I'm looking at like my younger brothers who go there they don't really do like how we used to do it. Yeah, and I it's guess not that um, in, like the involvement and all that stuff from the school and everything, and just the whole thing about like just organising it. And a lot of this comes back to the older Aboriginal students that are there, right? And there's a lot yeah. of pressure on you guys to be able to, because it's the same as when I was there. There was a lot of pressure on us to yeah. do those things. We weren't actually encouraged. They were kind of considered extra. They were kind of considered a little bit irrelevant. Um, to what was going on in the school, which what made that school such a powerhouse was how they combined and really utilised the community. Um, And I guess what's been happening within the time that you've been there, because you've spent your whole entire education there, um, a lot of that has been eroded and there's been a big sort of separation from the school and the community. And a lot of Aboriginal parents don't actually know what's going on down there and don't actually know about the pressures that are on um, you, you mob, you know, oh, well, not you anymore, um, you know, but the ones that are still down there, and even in, in this, this, um, this situation, I wanted to, I wanted to ask because our program Yalagari was very much about decolonisational methodologies and learning and unlearning English because you can't learn Radjuri language unless you've unlearned English. You know, they have English as a subject in school, right? How supportive did you feel in that program by the rest of the school um, to pursue and participate in decolonisational methodologies that undermined the institutions? Sorry, can you repeat that? So how supportive were yeah. that was the school with you guys participating and pursuing decolonisational methodologies? So decolonisational methodologies, again, was a big part of Yalagari, which was yeah. just questioning everything, questioning... Um, a lot of well, behaviour. With the school, so like that program, we, we did just have it in class and that stuff. But um, one time we decided to go outside. And um, so where our school was obviously like it's the whole um, the, 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 the development stuff, the building development, the, um, the whole gentrification and the change in the school around and that stuff. So um, there was a construction site near the high school, I guess you can say that. And um, like they had the boards up and everything. And so we, you know, we had fun and, like, we 
um, wrote, you know, a couple of words that we learned and I stuff and what meant, like, what was important to us and everything. Like, all us um, Aboriginal kids went out and did it in, in chalk. Mm-hmm. And the school, like, um, they removed it and I was very angry about it. Mm-hmm. And, it's, yeah, there was nowhere for us to have our free space. Wow, mm-hmm. that's so disrespectful. Like, we're all just, we're all being, like, shoved into, like, that one oval. But, yeah, it was just, even that, like, we couldn't even do anything with our program. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And and that was the whole reason why we chose chalk, right? Was yeah, because exactly. you could wash it off. Um, yeah. But they got, like, they got very, like, yeah, angry about it. And, um, you know, as the person that was uh, coming down there facilitating that, that really undermined any kind of relationship that I established with you guys because they then um, spoke to the kids, they spoke to the participants rather than the adults um, in charge of that. I just wanted to talk about space and what you was just talking about, just kind of bringing it back to um, going to school in a construction site. You know, when you first yeah. started there, that was a huge football field. Yeah, exactly. Even, um, like, about the HSC was doing that was hard because, like, all you can hear was just, like, you know, them working, like, the drills and all that stuff when you're trying to study and say, oh, like, no one else had it before us, you know what I mean? Like, they got their little free space, but then being in the construction style was just annoying. Mm. How valued did that make you feel? Um... Um, like it, yeah, sort of just like it made us, like, I don't know, sort of made us feel like we didn't matter. Like, our feelings didn't matter about that. Like, we, like, you know what I mean? It was about what they wanted, basically, the money and all that stuff. Which brings us, which brings us back to a really important conversation that we've been having throughout our whole time on radio. So I want to thank you for taking time out to um, answer these questions and have a bit of a yarn and really just kind of put it out there for our listeners about what this stuff actually means for the next, the coming generations and some of the things that they that they will be experiencing, um, which just you know, we we know. We we value each other, but we know that, you know, this society doesn't really value us. Um, but I just wanted to congratulate you on finishing your your school, um, your schooling in thank amongst you. all of that because that is so hard. Exactly. Yeah, mm. <laughs> thank you. Um, do you want to give any shout-outs or anything? Um, I guess shout-out to the young career kids around Waterloo and every community, like, yeah, just whoever's listening. Don't give up, I guess, whatever anyone says. Don't listen to them. Um, yeah, like you can just, you can make, you, you know, make do with what you got. Just don't don't think that, like, you know, because you don't have this, you won't, you can't do that now. Just, you know, make it, like, find a way, find a path to do it. Mm, that's uncover it. The dirt, uncover the dirt on the next path if you can, you know what I mean? Try to find another way. Yeah, that's it. And it's thank time. you. Just thank don't you. Try for- to give up. Thank you for being such a deadly young leader. Yeah, well, thanks so much. <laughs> Thank you. All right. Bye. 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 So. Wow. Straight from the source. Straight from the mouths of babes. That um, was amazing. Um, yeah, thanks to our interviewee. That was our first live interview on the radio. And we handled that really well. And it all worked out pretty good. Um, but yeah, shout outs to that wonderful young woman for sharing her story with us and sharing her own experiences of the kind of gentrification of her neighbourhood in an edu- in an educational um, setting, but also mm. within the context of actually having to move and, and, and right. the effects that, that has that on like? your lifestyle when you um, are 
connected to the community that you go to school in. Mm. So we're going to have a little break after that. Um, that was that literally I feel like we, we shouldn't even keep talking anymore mm. because she just wrapped that up and brought it back to so many points that we've been talking to just perfectly. Um, and that's how loaded and how, you know, in the thick of it we are at the moment right here. And... I just want to put it out there, keep it locked because we've got more interviews um, and we've also got an interview with a young Aboriginal man um, within um, university setting. So, you know, we're really unpacking education, hegemication in this in this place um, and the fight for space and why it's so important to keep educating our young people. Keep it locked. Uh, welcome back to Radio Skid Row. You're listening to The Survival Guide with Joel. And Lorna. And we have had an epic episode this week, uh, which I'm loving. Um, just kind of spilling all the tea right now um, with these educational institutions that have the charge of educating the next generations. All of the things that are kind of being interrupted mm. at the moment. Mm. Um, so we was at Sydney of University. Yeah, we well, were how many a few weeks we- ago now. A few about two, three weeks ago, we were at Sydney Uni um, talking about the show with a great group of people in the architecture faculty, um, talking about podcasting from you know Indigenous perspectives, non-white perspectives. Um, and when we left to when we were about to leave, we ran into a few people that we wanted to interview. Um, Lorna got some really great, had a really great conversation with a young man currently in his third year uh, in the Bachelors of Architecture. He's an Indigenous man. And we asked him to share some of his perspectives on how he feels in that space. Mm, he has a very specialist kind of sp- perspective and which he'll go more into. But he's someone that is associated with this community as well. Mm. Um, and I just wanted to mention that before we play this interview. Yeah, so we'll go into it just from here. What's your, how old are you and where do you live? I'm 23 in Alexandria. Um, and you're, you're studying architecture here, right? Yep. Um, okay. I've got a couple of, um, we're just playing word association with, um, with our participants. And the first word that we would like people to respond to is the word white. First thing that comes to your, to your mind. War. War. Yeah. I know. White room was the first thing I saw. It was white. Land rights. What's the first thing that you think of? An embassy. What about gentrification? Newtown, Redfern, mm. where I live. I feel like it's a it's a global process. It's something that's actually it's, it's weird because I come from a background where you're on the the bottom tier. You you see everything that happens to you. And you sit here and you work in this faculty and you get taught about how good it is and how it has more opportunities for everyone else, but it's just looking at people that can afford to actually put some money into it and eventually put money in your pockets. So it's a bit... Mm. It's weird. Mm. It's very odd. 
How do you respond to um, statements like no pride in genocide? What kind of emotion does that elicit from you? What do you think of? Pride, actually, that there are people there stand up and are not afraid to say things like genocide, things that people generally feel a bit too harsh or you know, make people feel uncomfortable. It doesn't make me feel uncomfortable. It, I just sit there and go, yep, and tell them how it is, tell them what happened. Mm. Yeah. The last kind of question that we get for people to answer is, are you a gentrifier? Do you play a part in gentrification? Gentrification? I don't think so. Mm. No. I think that there comes... It's two steps. Like, you can think about yourself and you think about where you come from and the ideals. Like, both my parents educated Mm. and I'm educated. A lot of my family, a lot of my cousins are not. Am I setting something different by looking for an education and looking for different sort of values as everyone else? Mm. Yes, but do I think that that makes me different to them? No. Mm. I just think that my values and what I want in this world and the way I want to go is a little bit different. I don't want to see everyone else follow the way that I am, but I want those that want to, Mm. that want to be educated, to want to push out and try to do more, Mm. to see it as an easier process, to go, look... My cousin did it, my uncle did it. Mm. You know, why can't I? I can go and talk to them. Just talking about your experience as an Aboriginal man studying architecture. I think that what I consider a norm is not what everyone else's norm. And even when I look at other blackfellas, it's not what I consider to be normal. Um, we grew up in a very radical family where that was normal. Mm. You know, it was normal to have a voice. It was normal to speak up. It was expected that you had an opinion and that you, know, you didn't just follow everyone else like sheep. Mm. And it was also a very key and heavy component to actually look for an education and to teach yourself and to learn so that when you get questioned about things, you can sit there and go, well, I've done this. I've shown that I can work in your world. And... I can do why just like everyone else can. Mm. You know, that doesn't make you any better than me. You can't silence me because I'm not just some black sitting at home. You know? That's, for me, it's like, you can't silence me anymore. And when you sit and you hear lectures and you hear professors talk about things that they have absolutely no idea about, it's kind of like, look, they don't know. Mm. Don't worry about it. You know? But it, who were they entertaining? Who were they telling? You know, they're telling a whole bunch of audience of like 40, 50 people that then go off and think that it's gospel. It's mm. bullshit. But for others, you know, for the people in community, it's different, mm. you know, because you see that, you understand that, and you see those values, and you also get that, like, they don't see the world that you do, and that's fine. It's something we've always been taught to take everything with a grain of salt, you know, we, we don't believe everything that we hear, we don't believe the words out of these mouths, and it's, it's hard to to lie about what you see and what you can see happening and for everyone else I think it's important that you know for everything that our parents have done they can't relate as well to the people that are our own age mm. 
and although that we haven't, we don't have their lived experience. We've got a shared experience because we've grown up with people visiting our house we've, at all we've hours of the night. We've inherited their trauma as well. Yeah, you know? and so that collective memory that we share in from not just our parents but our grandparents, the lives that they've lived, it means that we're in a unique position to actually shed light on the world that we live in. We're in a position just like you know, our forefathers and our mothers. 30, 40 years ago to actually make a change and to change the way that blacks are looked at in this country. Mm. And so that in 20, 30, 40 years, you know, our kids can do the same. And the whole point is that you know, they don't have to live through the struggle that we live through and that we haven't lived to have to live through the struggle that our, grand, our parents and our grandparents have you know, because they're the ones that are putting in the hard work and they're the ones that are changing the way that we're seen in this country. Mm. So for everyone else out there that you know, is the same age, it's... Just take a look at yourself. You know, how, how do you feel about who you are and the way that you're portrayed in this country? You know, are you judged for what you do? Are you judged for drinking? Are you judged for doing things that you know, everyday students, everyday white people do and there's no consequences? Mm. You know, is that okay? Mm. Is it all right that you're not allowed to you know, hang out with friends and do things that everyone else does and you, everything's put under a microscope? And you're, either, you're working and you're doing something for... for the man and it's not not quite what community wants or you're doing nothing and then you're just a dull bludger like mm. when do these ideas when do these stereotypes stop when are you allowed to just be black and be free in your own country on and do what it is that you want to do and you want out of this world when do you get to make your own choices you know? and when do we stop looking over our shoulders at everyone else wondering what we're doing you know? that's what I want I, I want a period where we're free to live in this country our own country without stigma, without issues that we do now. You know, why do we have to sit there and justify why we've been on a period of land for the last 30, 40 years? Why do we have to go back and say, hey, look, why are you taking this away from us? Why do you want to move us out of the city? You, know, you put us here in the first place and suddenly, what, because it's expensive, because it's close, that you don't want us here now? You know, we're not second-rate citizens. You don't get to push us around and move us just because you feel like it. So... You know, our voice, and who do we have as role models? You know, how many times have you seen people that were around the embassy, you know, actually fighting for Indigenous rights on TV? Nowadays, not very often. You know? mm-hmm. But you see people that are speaking in cabinet, you see people that are sp- supposed voices mm-hmm. of the community, but they don't know what it's like. Mm-hmm. They're either too old, they've got someone else's talking in their ear, or they just don't know. Mm-hmm. Indigenous architects in Australia are very, very few. You know, how many role models do I have to look up to? Three or four. But in terms of what we can do looking forward is we need a greater participation. You know, we need more blackfellas in here actually going, look, I want to do something. I want to change the shape of the city I live in. I want to change the shape of the community. Like, that's my big go-to is I want to eventually take what I learn, take it back to the community and change the way that we live day in, day out. You know, why do we have to live in structures that aren't designed by us and they're not designed for us? You know, the whole concept of a mission. You know, it's, it's there to bring us down, not to build us up. It's a concentration camp. Yeah. And to keep us segregated. I've actually had mixed response, I think. I think I've had some positive responses from a few professors that I've spoken to about what I want to get out of this degree and where I want to go and how I want to shape things. And they've had some good ideas and they've worked internationally with a few different projects and trying to how like they've also done trips up to Yarrabah and decided to 
design how the mission up there should work. You know, and they, they met and consulted with the elders and the traditional owners up there and that was a really nice project. Mm. You know, it was very interesting. And it's not open. It's just open to those that are interested in it. But it's not something that is actively taught. It's not something that, unless you have an interest in, you're ever going to pick up on. Mm. You know, because a lot of people are just looking for residential. They're looking for paychecks and they're looking for more money. Mm. And that's the thing with justification is that they're going to be the ones that are going to work on these big projects. Mm. Because the issue is not necessarily. I don't think with the students that are here. Like yes, they need to be more aware and they need to understand what it is they're doing. But if someone's putting in a proposal to do this, you're going to find someone, Whether even if they're not Australian, they're going to bring international people in to do it that have no idea and they're going to do it because they're going to get paid. And that comes back to the institutions and the way that they look at space. Yeah. Um, so the biggest issue, I think, is actually who's funding it. You know, mm. Who wants this space? Mm. Who thinks that they're going to get the, the greatest benefit? And why is their benefit better than ours? Mm. Well, just because they can pay more money to be there. Do you think that this place um, and where we are right now and this city, do you see it as Aboriginal land? I don't think, I don't, it's something that they say, you know, universities are very big on acknowledgements and trying to get people to come out and do welcomes. But what, when those people leave the room or when you finish saying your last, you know, three sentences, what does that mean to the people that are sitting there? You know, are they actually actively sitting there going, oh, interesting, like... I imagine what this place is like. Like, I can sit there and I go, like, I know, I know that Cattigal Green was a billabong. I know that the ridge lines carried up through City Road along Parramatta and through Newtown. I know that where the Great Hall sit was once a burial ground. You know, those are things that I carry around knowing. But does everyone else do it? No, they've got no idea. And as soon as you do that acknowledgement and you say that, you know, the Cattigal people were the traditional owners of this land, like, to them, what does it mean? You know, it's kind of, it's almost become tokenistic in a way where it's, it's trying to be so aware that no one really understands what it is they're saying. You know, they're not actually acknowledging your presence and saying that there are spirits here that have been here for thousands and thousands of years. They're watching you right now. They're in this room. You know, and you're accountable to them. You're accountable to every other person here. And your actions are, you know, they're viewed. And you better be careful with what you do. You know, and that goes everywhere in this country. People don't really understand that. They feel like as soon as you get out bush and you go for a walk in the national park, suddenly, oh, now we're in Aboriginal land because it looks the same way it used to, you know. And it still doesn't because the landscape that we live in is not the same as what it was back then, you know, because we took care of it, you know. Five-stick farming is probably one of the biggest things that's only come to light now about how important it was for this country and why we have so many issues with backburning and bushfires. It's because... White people don't know how to take care of it. They haven't lived here long enough. They don't understand. We're not living in England. That doesn't make sense anymore. You know, stop trying to build brick houses. It's too cold. It doesn't work. Like, you don't understand the climate. You don't understand what's happening. Stop trying to think that you know best. You know, just because it's written down in a, you know, in a piece of paper or it's published and it's acknowledged by your peers doesn't mean that a collective memory or something that's been passed down through thousands and thousands of generations doesn't work. Because when they first came here, they came to us for help because you know, they didn't know how to do it, they still don't. They're still not asking us for help. Now they're just saying, we acknowledge the people of this land. We acknowledge that they were here. You know? But what does that actually mean? What are you acknowledging? You know? Are you acknowledging that when you buy a piece of land, you start to build some bricks and put it together, that that's not really yours? And you're displacing somebody else as well. Yeah. Like, are you really understanding the concept that you are 
taking away something from someone else, you know, and that's that's gentrification for me. It's like I can pay more money, I've got more right to be there. Well, why? You know, is that just because of the world we live in? Like, when do you wake up and smell the roses? Like, it doesn't work like that. There is consequences, and whether you don't care or you're not aware, there are people that are being put out just by you being there because you were never meant to be there in the first place. You were never welcomed. And now that we sit here and we do it like, why do we do an acknowledgement? Why do we do a welcome? Yeah. We are saying that it's safe for you to come into that space and you're not going to be harmed. Why? You know, what acknowledgement have you given us? What sort of area have you said that, look, you can trust us, you know? It's okay for us to be here. And it's a good step, but I just feel like it needs to go further. Mm. Because at the moment, no one really understands what it means. Mm. Or at least the people that are sitting there having it done to them don't understand. Thank you. That was deadly. Anything you want to say? Anything else? Any last comments? I'll just shout out to my little girl, Ayla, if you ever hear this. I love you very much. Welcome back. Hey. So, that was huge that conversation and um i really feel like that answers like a lot of questions i think kind of that were have been brought up along the line of this show over the last four episodes don't you love it how you just go out there in the community and just find a black fella and then they have no idea what we've been doing in the studio but they wrap it all up so eloquently Mm. so beautifully so poetically all in one 20 minute conversation outside outside of all this you know um, but I just wanted to, we, I was just talking and I just wanted to bring it back, you know, how great that would be for you guys to have had that kind of conversation yeah, in those institutions. Exactly. The whole, the whole time we were listening to that, to that wonderful interview and listening to this, this, you know, incredibly eloquent, incredibly intelligent young man talking about his perspective on architecture and me just being like, you know, I had my fist raised in solidarity with everything that he was saying. And it's like, how, how come I don't know this guy? And mm. it's, um... It's the, it's, it brings up these questions and these issues that we're kind of trying to unpack on today's episode around access and inclusiveness and, and, and visibility as well in education. Mm-hmm. And um, I think that there, are, there is a lot of work that still needs to be done within mm-hmm. every institution about praising and, and creating space for um, indigeneity. I think we also heard it from our phone interviewer as mm-hmm. well from the high school speaking about their own Same experiences thing. of a lack of space to be indigenous and to be mm-hmm. connected with each other because like exactly why can't i be in faculty talking to this guy about what we're talking about it's um it's kind of crazy that and these can't be conversations because we share so much just coming to mm-hmm. these things from where we've mm-hmm. come from we share so much um perspective and so many so many attitudes towards this practice is as as studying in architecture so we don't have space in our institutions mm. we don't have spaces where we live where where do we go to mm. feel safe? Mm. Where do we go to feel valued? Where do we go to even see another black face? And it in used these to be Redfern, you know. And, well, it and, used to be. That's mm. right. And and now and now this is even being aggressed upon and encroached upon by the logic of you know the market and just how this just how we said in the interview. I think it's really interesting. Pulled some really, really, really interesting points about how well that's where people were meant set up to go anyway. And then now that it's become, uh, it's become, um, you know, 
appealing for white people to live there. Mm. They just want to kick us out again. Cause, yeah. you know. After they've kicked our people out um, for so long. Yeah. And I just wanted to bring it back to, you know, because this is a conversation that I'm always having to have with my parents. Um, and as brilliant as they are, um, as knowledgeable as they are, all the things that they have done, it's they still don't quite understand what it's like to have lived here and grown up in this community because they have come from them concentration camps. They're only just identifying that whole Stockholm Syndrome now. You know, and I, I don't want to speak for them. They've probably known what it is for a very long time, but these conversations are very, very big at the moment because this is a space that we do have an emotional attachment to, but potentially they were concentration camps that our people were forced on to. also problematic. I mean, it's you looking back on a, on a situation. Um, I mean, and I can't speak about this personally in any way, shape or form, but when you have a life that was kind of, you know, founded, and the foundational moments of your childhood were in that space. That's where you come from. That's mm-hmm. your. That's that's where you're mm-hmm. nostalgized. That's that's why we are reacting to this issue because we have those connections to this community, to this space. Redfern mm-hmm. and Waterloo are is that same space to us as it has been for. And it's not to well, say it was that the refuge. It was the sanctuary that these mob have been running away yeah. from these rural towns exactly. and the it's, racism that it's they the experienced. the space that they created yeah. in the city out of out it was of sanctuary. They're not being space for them in you know their own communities and, mm-hmm. and, and in the towns that they were brought up in. And um, a lot of a lot of gems from that um, conversation. Mm. You can't silence me even in this space. Mm. I think that that speaks to everything that we are actively trying to do, even having the show on, on radio, even having the show, um, being a part of the show, being a part of these conversations and reiterating them to a larger audience. That's huge. You know, this is something, um, this is something that's very much needed. Um, take a look at yourself. I'm just going to keep quoting this person because it's brilliant. You put us here in the first place. Now you want to move us. Mm. Um, we can go. We can go on and on. This ep, I'm I loving in, this ep. I think to contrast with um, some of the great stuff that's been said so far, we have another sound clip that you took from that's right. another fella in the architecture faculty. And I just wanted to go back to something that um, that person was talking about. Um, uh, just repeating buzzwords. What this society does, they don't actually understand the things that they talk about, but they talk about it so confidently and actually silence people that know what they're talking about. So when I think about this interview, this is how I, that's how I remembered it. And you haven't heard this as well. And exactly. this is also someone that is um, has the charge of educating people that are going to go out to the rest of the world and even in Sydney and um, shape that that space. So um, this guy was a lecturer, you said, or yeah. a professor at the university. Yeah, so I seen him. Faculty. I seen him smoking a cigarette and kind of um, approached him, and um, yeah, we'll just we'll just play it, and I think that you can kind of sense how uncomfortable I was. But um, the drag will ensue. We'll we'll come back to it after we play it. Can you respond to the word land rights? Aboriginal. And what do you think of when you hear the statement um, "no pride in genocide"? Oh, horror. How much do you know about the gentrification that's happening in Sydney? Um, probably very little. I don't really think about it. My last question I'll leave you with is, um, are you a gentrifier? What's gentrification? Are you a gentrifier? Yes, but what is gentrification? Do you play a part in gentrification? 
probably. I'll leave it there. What does Thanks gentrification actually mean in the modern context? Gentrification is gentrifying, making something look better. Um, it's talking about removing people, moving on populations of poor people. Oh, Colonisation right. is yeah. the exact same thing, except it usually moves on Indigenous people. Yeah, well, see, my, my uh, take on gentrification probably goes back three, four hundred years. When, and my, I, I thought gentrification was people becoming more gentle or more gentlemanly. I guess on the basis of it, that's what it says it does or that's what people are alluding to what it does. But really, it's about gentrifying space. Yeah, I know. It happened in the Olympics here. Well, see, I worked with the Aboriginals up in the Kimberley. Mm-hmm. And, um, My husband's from the Kimberley. Right, really. Well, I worked with Joseph Rowe up there. Yeah. You know Joseph? I know the Rose. I the know the Rose. Rose family. Yeah, well, he's sort of boss man of the whole Kimberley. Um, uh, I'm sure a different mob would contest that. Um, well, he, he is in lots of ways. Yeah. Um, he looks after the land and he looks after people. Yeah, but the Kimberleys is a big area. And yeah. I think that, you know, I, I would avoid making statements like that. The same way I would avoid making statements right. about this community down yeah. here. Well, he... Were, he from broom outwards, he looks after the mm. people. Yeah, well, that's uh, a bit more specific. See? Yeah, and I, I worked all over the Kimberley with um, a group, Mum and Belungeon. And, um, you know, I worked out at Tennant Creek and Halls Creek and up in the Cape Levique, mm. Fitzroy Crossing, Derby, mm. and right out into the desert. Mm. Um, up at um, Turkey Creek, Punalulu, all of those areas. So... Joseph still had an impact out there. And so you're aware of a lot of the housing uh, projects that have been happening out there and um, yeah, Aboriginal housing has kind of been... Yeah, I worked on a lot of them. I worked on a really big range of projects, like from the Gimme Gimme Club in Guala Media. Uh, not Guala. Um, Galari. Galari Media. Yeah. Um, met some great people there. And then I met some people that were language groups that were just um, not even considered and I used to help tailor funding just to get uh, women's refuges and whatever um, so it was it was a sad time, it was a good time but it was a sad time I, I was part of a um, got involved in a tri-venture for Aboriginal housing up at Cape Levique uh, we did 26 houses there houses were rooted and they were rooted not because of the occupants they were rooted because of they were funded initially and then they received no maintenance no support I brought to light the fact that different companies in the tri-venture were paying lip service to the process but receiving this huge amount of funds for doing nothing and the actual so if you had this big bag of money a tiny little bit would hit the ground and that would be what was spent on the housing. And 70% of it was going um, to companies for paying lip service and doing very, very little. And I would assume that they, in their packaging, they would say that they're doing a whole lot of Aboriginal consultation but are hand-picking people, yeah. which is basically what happens everywhere. Yeah, they'd buy someone in the community, usually... Um, 
half-educated chairman can sign off on his people. So do you, do you know where these kind of relationships were established, these kind of formats to work with Aboriginal communities? Do you know where it was established? Yeah, uh, I think they were established uh, directly by the Department of Housing in Western Australia. Well, I think it actually goes back and they would have learnt it from um, Governor Phillip in kidnapping Benelong. Probably, yeah. I've been thinking seriously about it, particularly better long the last oh, three or four months. Mm. You know, quite strongly because I've been at the Opera House, been a better long point. And um, I'm aware, I've read the history. I, and you live right there on the water, right? Yeah, I live in Bershko, yeah. which is a very wealthy spot. Mm. And yeah. it's right on the water, which has been yeah. built on top of ceremonial grounds. Probably, yeah. Yeah, I'm telling you, it has. I'm fact, it's yeah, fact. Right. It's not probably, it's fact. Yeah. Well, all the east coast of Australia, nearly every caravan park on the east coast of Australia is built on Aboriginal meeting grounds. Well, these roads here, Parramatta Road, is, is an Aboriginal track. Right. Um, you know, how much do white people know about this place, why they tell the original occupants that's still here to get over things? And, you know, it's for your own good. Yeah, no. If you go down the east coast, you go, news heads. Caloundra, um, Bribey Island, Stradbroke Island, um, both north and south. Then you go to Coolangatta, you go to Fingal, you go to uh, Yamba, you go to Crescent Head, you go to um, Grassy Head, you go to Blackhead, you go to Angowrie, you go to every one of these beautiful spots. They're all in the lee of the southerly in winter. It's where the mullet school, the tailor school, yeah. they come around the corner. That's where the whales, um, you know, yeah. um, swim by every year as well in their, in their international transit and, you know, their travels and migration. Um, and we know, we know how valuable our land is. Yeah. That's kind of the point. Um, what do you yeah. do about it? How do, we, how do we fix it? We fix it by reminding people that the occupation is actually illegal. And the way that land has been acquired has actually been very, very immoral. Yeah. So putting the onus back on everybody that has land, how do they feel about that? Wow. Okay. Um, well, he did go on. He, um, he, he continued to spill the tea um, and was talking about the housing projects that he's been a part of, which I thought was really interesting, how he did not think about none of these things, about gentrification, and then continue to question me about the word, um, which I found very deflective. Mm. Um, because, you know, and I said, I, my opinions are very loaded, which is why I have a whole show mm. unpacking this stuff. Um, and if you want to know them, then you need to tune in. Mm. Um, it's very, yeah, and I think when, when, you, when you conducted that interview, you spoke to us about how how he had gone on to express his, you know, almost saying that he was on side with Indigenous community and, and, and Indigenous people as a whole because of the work that he had done in relationship to community, um, which, you know, is problematic in so many ways. You know, mm -hmm. he, the fact that he gleefully will include himself in a conversation where he was really just, you know, he was extracting 
what he could to pay himself um, in a situation. And I'm not going to say that what he was doing was in all bad, but then to think that he can equate the relationship that maybe he had to some community to him having a relationship with Indigenous people in general mm. or sympathies to, that, to mm. the, the things that are going on within an Sydney's context or just mm-hmm. in, um, a global context is, um, I think, incredibly short-sighted and incredibly um, upsetting to hear someone who is educating uh, young people in this, um, yeah, within the institution um, about how to practice architecture. That person lives in Birchgrove, which is right near the water. Um, and I found interesting because I think I mentioned just how there was, um, you know, all of the whole coastline is place are places of significance for our people. This is where ceremony has been conducted for many, many thousands, if not millions of years, to which he responded, um, or it was something like, um, yeah, well, apparently. And I was like, no, it's fact. And he was like, well, you know, then we started kind of arguing about what is what is fact and what is not. And I found it very interesting that me as just a Aboriginal woman, physically, you know, visibly Aboriginal, asking somebody, um, a white man, for an interview. And he kind of spoke to me like I didn't know much. But the crux of the conversation was he doesn't actually think that he needs to know mm. about any of these things. And exactly. that's that's the point of it, right? Exactly. Um, and how these does, are the people that are educating whole classes. How does this affect me? Oh, not really that much. I'm in my own house. I'm not a part of this conversation. And I mean, that's the that's the, also the issue that I find in my own studies, um, finishing my Master's of Architecture at the University of Sydney, engaging in conversations with pre, you know predominantly white men um, secure and women and women, um, white men and women who um, operate with a certain level of security. You know, they own their own houses. They don't. They don't experience housing stress. They haven't. They don't having. They don't really experience debt in, in an educational sense because they were all trained and and gained their qualifications earlier on in the last century when it was you know for free for free. Yeah. Um, and then they then they can they come and they want to express. Um, ideas or disappointment in projects that you try to engage in conversations you try to engage in around indigeneity um the built environment in the city and it's and it's almost too far gone because i i can't believe that they could believe that they can give a insightful and um interesting perspective on some of these things because they're not engaging with and haven't engaged with the same levels or the same ideas. And I'm not saying that that should be the cutoff point, but at least a little bit of dilution in your opinion is needed when you can't in any way understand or empathize with those issues. And um, I'm just kind of going to drag, you know, my own experiences because that's just how I felt. And it's funny when, you know, I moved from UTS to UCID because I felt unsupported as mm. an Indigenous student. And, mm. you know, it's not really gotten a lot better, even though, you know, I would say this is probably one of the, you know, the oldest institutions and therefore because of that at least has the the, um, the resources to better support Indigenous students. Mm. Um, so, it's, yeah, it's very interesting and I think it's really important. I'm just going to – I just was reminded of this just now – there's um, a book launch of an Indigenous architect's book, Kevin O'Brien, mm. on today mm-hmm. at the University of Sydney Architecture Faculty. How's that? And yeah. you're here. And I'm here. Um, <laughs> I'm about to head over after this, so I'll see you guys there if you want to come. Um, amazing, to it, yeah. the, the amazing Linda Kennedy, who helped us um, 
on the panel that we gave a that few weeks ago. That was a part of the Blacktown Institute and also work in, as well. In, 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 yeah, in conversation with Blacktown and all of the direct community um, with the Native Institute um, is also speaking. Um, mm-hmm. is, a, is an amazing, it's a, it's a book called Our Stories and it's mm-hmm. a collective, a set of collect, a collection of essays written by Indigenous um, architects and mm-hmm. Indigenous spatial practitioners, mm-hmm. spatial designers, um, theorists mm-hmm. and, and stuff like that all around what it means to practice in the built environment as mm-hmm. um, Indigenous people, mm-hmm. which is really exciting because, you know, it's probably going to become a textbook of mine in my own mm-hmm. um, engagement and proceedings just to Probably you know. would have made the last couple of years a little, little bit, little bit easier if we had those kind of um, resources, resources. Yeah. right at yeah. the start. Um, and I just wanted to just before we we um, get too caught up in our ending notes, our ending comments was that um, there's action. Women of Waterloo um, and with this whole theme talking about books, Mm. you know, we need to talk about how important it is um, for Waterloo Library to stay where it is, Um, you know, because we've had all of our institutions eroded, um, hijacked, um, moved and now the libraries in the community are um, under the microscope. Mm, mm. They're now they're now no longer being valued for what they operate as, which is somewhere where you can access information and um, at, you know information that has been stored away because of its relevance. It's like mm. we have we're kind of going through these transitions as technology is improving and as um, our attitudes around the way that we learn and engage with stuff changes that we're actually kind of probably cutting corners where we shouldn't and it's really interesting that the Waterloo Library in and of itself is coming under question in the redevelopment when it's not connected to the Waterloo development it's Mm. not connected to the Green Square Mm. development but somehow has come Mm -hmm. into question about whether or not it's relevant whether it should stay so yes the women of Waterloo are hosting or they are occupying um, the space of the radio of the um sorry of the library, library. tomorrow sixteenth um, at Waterloo Library I think at midday is when they've scheduled the read in mm-hmm. but essentially it's occupying the um the library uh, um, past its open hours so that mm-hmm. um they can't shut so it's a good old fashioned sit in mm-hmm. but they're asking for people to read books yep. to bring their books and educate have yourself a, a read in um you know and this just brings us back to their opening quote. Uh, Malcolm X's quote, um, you know, only a fool would let his enemy educate their children. Look at all the things that our elders have put in place so that they have some kind of control over their children's education. Look Mm. at all the things that are being eroded. Our old people are not silly. They were never silly, you know, and this is the sort of information and the kind of, you know, this is what comes from survival tactics Mm. this is what comes from being pressured and pushed to the brink of you know dare dare say extinction and all those kind of things because this is kind of what we're talking about you know we have survived we've survived 230 years of illegal occupation in our countries they've been controlling the way that black kids have been learning for a very long time Mm. here in this community we've had a lot of radical educational models that Mm. are being eroded and further eroded and one of the things that you can do to support us is get down there with your book and go and have a read Mm. at at the library tomorrow some of the things that we can do is to just keep talking keep talking and putting our perspectives out there trying to make these pathways easier for these younger people to have access to making this information accessible 
sorry, I always, I always get on my, always get on my, um, my horse and I just ride it. No, 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 it's important. It's important. Um, but I think that's when we're going to call it. Um, today we've kind of gone over time so thank you for listening i hope you learned something and i hope that you come away with a better understanding of the way that your own privilege intersects with other people's oppression in the conversation around gentrification and displacement mm-hmm. it's not only the housing and the rent increases it's, it's what effect it's the knock-on effects of those things that happen to communities and the institutions that provide for those communities um We've been talking about education, schooling, radical practices of black women in this space since the early 70s. We've been talking about radical black thought, Mm. how important that is to maintain that and to reiterate that to another generation. Mm. And we've been talking about things we want to leave behind, things we want to take into the future, tools that we are packaging for our young people to survive the next how many more years that this illegal occupation and specifically this gentrification that's happening right here, right now. Um, All of these things have shaped us. They've given us the tools to survive. We've been doing the work. We've been doing the hard yards. We're inviting you in to listen to us because we can't do it alone. We can't have this conversation. We're all complicit and connected to this ongoing colonization of country. And we hope that you have learned something with us today. We're all talking, you know, high on that education. Um, on that hegemacation, <laughs> that white man's hegemacation. Hopefully we've been able to spread some light and um, show you some, you know, some issues, show you some interesting perspectives Mm. and different ideas we had some really great guests who could speak with us today Um, big thank you to them big thank you to radio skid row 88.9 without them none of this could happen our wonderful producer hannah um giving us the mic every week um we'll be up on the podcast will be up on um the skid row facebook and hopefully soon we'll have our own Mm. things set up Mm. also want to say thank you to university of sydney and the community broadcasters foundation for their sponsorship and and their help um it's been great keep it locked and we'll see you next week done see you